You are listening to Global Questions. Today, I am joined with Bill Bertels, the ABC's China correspondent. The other thing that China constantly said and has been continuing to say is that Australia is just a pawn of the US. That as far as Beijing is concerned, it's the US that has basically ordered Australia to go out and call for this inquiry, that Canberra is always doing the bidding of the US. We're talking about the Australia-China trade war and what it means for our future relations. I'm your host, Genevieve Marcocci. Thank you so much for being here today, Bill. Uh, no, that's all right. It, um, sorry, I'm just making, if you can hear, I'm just making a coffee because it's so early in the morning here. <laughs> don't, don't mind me. I sort of think it's good to do as many of these things as you can, just because you never know who's listening. Um, you could have an interesting interesting chat and there might not be a huge audience or maybe it would be, but at least the people are engaging with it. So, um, yeah, I, I try to say yes to as many things as I can manage. So can you set the scene for us? What actually happens at the General Assembly that focused on the inquiry probe into China and their initial response to the COVID-19 outbreak? Yeah, so basically... The majority of countries all came together to agree on an inquiry that's led by the WHO. And if you you go back to how it all started, it looks as though the Australians were the first to publicly come out and say, hey, we should have some sort of independent international mechanism to uh, work out how this all started and how everyone responded to it. And... Around that time, the European Union also put forth a similar idea. And so basically, it was the EU resolution that went forward at the Assembly. The Australians, of course, backed it. In the end, everyone, including China, basically backed it. But it was really watered down from that original Australian idea of having some sort of genuinely independent body that could go in and and have powers to investigate. That was never really going to happen. I think the Australians knew that. And so instead, you got this this WHO-led inquiry that isn't going to take place until the pandemic has passed, whenever that will be. And because it's going to be run by the WHO, even though China says it will be objective and fair, in reality, um, like all these UN bodies, uh, China and every other country, including the US, will be able to influence uh, how that inquiry takes place. And how has the Chinese government reacted to this probe? Well, the argument goes that the priority at the moment is to prevent the spread of the disease and and more deaths, um, and they don't want a political process um, evaluating the failures uh, at that early point. But to be honest, I don't think the Chinese government wants any inquiry at all, even though it ended up voting for this WHO measure, um, just because uh, two things. Uh, one, China's obsessed with sovereignty and the idea of some sort of international body poking around with uh, investigators in China is uh, it's not an appealing idea to them. It sort of violates their ideas of national sovereignty. But the second thing, of course, is Um, There were mistakes made, particularly in the early weeks in China. Um, Those mistakes are embarrassing to the party leadership, and they just don't want 
um, a, a public inquiry of any type into those mistakes because that's just not what the Chinese government does. It doesn't dwell on its past mistakes. It doesn't publicise them. And to have some sort of international body of investigators um, going over those mistakes is, uh, you know, could potentially be embarrassing to the party leadership. What does this probe mean for our trading relationship with China? If you look at what they've targeted, they're kind of not that strong. So Australia does about $194 billion of sales to China uh, each year, or that was the last year. And if you take away the half a billion or so of barley and the half a billion or so of beef that is affected uh, by um, the measures on uh, beef uh, imports into China, then you're still left with 193. They're basically chipping away a very small proportion of Australia's total trade to China. So it's more like a warning at this stage rather than a, a substantial economic hit. But the reason they're doing it um, is, well, it's a few reasons, but the coronavirus thing very much looks like it's one of them. And it's been building for years that China feels Australia has been too willing to publicly criticize and confront and challenge China. And this uh, coronavirus call was seen by Beijing, I think, as the final straw. So they said, all right, this is it. We're going to punish you now. Um, but the other issue is with the barley. Um, quite obviously, the, the Chinese government signed this massive phase one trade deal with the US last year. The deal basically required the Chinese government to buy a huge amount of American agricultural products, probably far more than the Americans can even produce and export. And so the Chinese are looking for anything, any way they can to increase U.S. agricultural imports. And so what they did is within a day or two of uh, putting these massive tariffs on Australian barley, they then announced that China will start taking imports of American barley. So that one kind of looked like there was a backstory there. It wasn't just the coronavirus uh, diplomatic issue. It was also because they were trying to find a way um, to help uh, increase U.S. imports. But, of course, the U.S. has terrible relations with China. So you can see it's not just about the diplomatic relations. I think there's always a few things at play, but certainly the Australia-China uh, uh, issues in recent years, um, that's been a massive factor. Do you think China is testing Australia and their relationship to see how far they can go due to the seemingly harsh tariffs they're imposing or threatening to impose? Yeah, there could be. Um, I would say that Beijing is trying to test Australia's domestic politics, that if you, um, if you put enough pressure through initial tariffs on the smaller sectors of Australian exports, will that prompt a change in Australia's domestic policies towards China? And if it doesn't, then maybe Beijing will go further and could start targeting other things like Australian wine or um, even things like tourism and education, but those would be harder to target. At the moment, I reckon it's very much a wait-and-see approach from Beijing just to see how much economic coercion will flip Australia's domestic stance towards China. Does the US have a role to play in this trade war between Australia and China? Um, yeah, the... the so the, the U.S., the, the thing about all this Australia-China stuff is, you know, the U.S. Is, is lurking in the background on pretty much every issue. And 
the last few years, forget coronavirus, before this all blew up, the last few years was all trade war focused, right? This massive trade spat. And so you might remember last year, they signed what's called the phase one trade deal, which is really not very consequential at all. It basically didn't get the Americans what they wanted. But what it did get them in the short term, at least, is this promise that the Chinese will buy a lot more stuff from America. But, you know, most of it's just agricultural goods, things like barley. And so that's an example where you have this terrible relationship between Beijing and Washington. But because of the power, because, you know, Washington's a, a, a far much, a much more powerful, much more important partner to China than Australia is, um, it, it's not as though. The, uh, the Chinese can sort of treat the Americans in the same way that they're treating Australia. Um, the, the economic coercion they're doing towards Australia is all very much about, uh, you know, a, a superpower, a rising superpower dealing with a, a smaller country. So the, the US dynamic is completely different. But, you know, the Bali, you can just tell that the, the Bali issue, that, that American trade deal is totally playing into it. Do you think the media has been portraying these potential tariffs and boycotts fairly? Yeah, the Australian media is pretty jumpy with China. And I think the media as a whole is learning uh, to become a bit more sophisticated with how to uh, deal with all these constant stories. Because the thing is, China's government in the last few years has just gone on the front foot with this really, um, you have to call it a pretty aggressive strategy towards countries like Australia, Sweden, Canada, these sort of smaller Western nations. And this, this barley and beef stuff that we've seen in the past couple of weeks is really the first tangible hit that Beijing has put on Australia. So for years, there's been all this talk about, oh, you know, you've got to choose between China and America and the Chinese will, will cut off this trade and that trade, but it just hasn't really happened. The amount of uh, volume of trade between the two countries just continued to surge year after year. And now finally, it looks like China's drawn a line in the sand and says, all right, we'll, we'll chip you on your barley and your beef just to see how you respond. Um, but then the Australian media loves doing a story, like the newspapers love doing stories saying, oh, iron ore could be next or coal. Because, you know, China's government is so non-transparent, honestly. It is so secretive. You cannot get straight answers. Our diplomats can't get straight answers. Our business people can't get straight answers. And so for that reason, sometimes the Chinese government plays silly buggers and is deliberately punishing Australia. But in other times, it's actually not. It might be, for example, slowing down imports of Australian coal, not because it's targeting Australia, but because it's trying to protect the local coal producers. But the thing is, because there's so little dialogue, there's so little access to Chinese policymakers for Australians to ask questions, it means that the media will jump on every little thing and say, maybe Beijing is ramping up the punishment here. Maybe this is the next economic sector. So you see a lot of this. I think, though, um, we're probably getting to a level of increasing sophistication where there isn't this sort of jumpy panic every single time um, there's a there's a, some sort of new economic measure. That said, as you've seen, there's been a lot of reporting about it. So uh, I suppose there's still a fair degree of anxiety generally. Is this probe really a win for Australia? I think it's diplomatically a pretty good outcome for Australia. 
but the funny thing is the Chinese government has really tried to refute that. And, and that's what's been kind of bitter about it. So Australians came out, and you've got to remember, the language was really quite mild from Australia's Foreign Minister Maurice Payne. It was something along the lines of we need some sort of international mechanism uh, to look into the origins, but also the global response. Anyway, so Chinese government, you know, thought that was a horrible uh, uh, provocation. And then with the final thing that went through the uh, EU-led WHO resolution, so, you know, the Australian diplomats could come out and say, well, look, we originally proposed this. Yes, it got watered down incredibly, but that's diplomacy. That's what you have to do, a bit of horse trading, and it's a win. That's pretty much what Australian government did do. And then China was so determined through its foreign ministry and through the embassy to come out and say for Australia to claim they're vindicated by this result is a joke. You know, this this resolution that we signed up to, that the world signed up to, has nothing to do with the Australian proposal. So basically there was real bitterness from Beijing uh, trying to make it very clear that uh, it, it doesn't, it hasn't, basically hasn't conceded to Australia's original call for an independent inquiry. And what has China kind of been saying about the way Australia has pushed this inquiry? Well, it's from the outset, it's described the idea. It's just been, I can't remember the actual wording, but from the outset, it's just described it as, 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 as a sort of political, uh, that's right, political manoeuvring. So, so China would keep saying that uh, countries that want to use uh, so-called investigations uh, into coronavirus for political reasons should stop. And the other thing that China constantly said and has been continuing to say is that Australia is just a pawn of the US, that as far as Beijing is concerned, it's the US that has basically ordered Australia to go out and call for this inquiry, that Canberra is always doing the bidding of the US. This is, this is a long-term claim from Beijing. It's not particularly new, but it's completely ramped up with the whole American coronavirus trade war rivalry. And so it's a good insight into how the leadership here views Australia basically as nothing but a pawn of the US. And so this is why China's government was so dismissive of Australia's call for an inquiry, because from the outset, it viewed it as something that Washington had put the Aussies up to. And so that was basically the thrust of it. This is political manoeuvring. This, is, this inquiry doesn't have good intentions. It's designed to target China. That was the idea that Beijing had. Can you maybe explain a little bit more about how this three-way interaction between China, Australia and America actually formed? Well, when you think about it, this has all been going for decades, really, that China's always been obsessed with the US, been obsessed with American containment of China. And you look at it, you look at it from a Chinese perspective, you'd say, well, hang on, we've got you know, US military bases in South Korea right next door, in Japan right next door. There used to be American bases in the Philippines. You know, go right back to the Second World War. You had, or post post World War, in the early days of communism, you had U.S. Marines on Taiwan. You have U.S. defence agreements with Singapore. Yeah, further away in Australia, you now have troops in Darwin. Um, you have the Five Eyes Alliance. 
This is how China sees it. It sees the Americans as constantly uh, containing militarily, strategically China's rise, even in China's own backyard. So you can see if that's your starting point, the way you look at Australia is not to, to size up Australia as an independent country that makes its own decisions, but to simply see it as a pawn of the US and to say whatever Australia does, if it's, if it's in any way critical of China, we reckon the Americans have their mitts all over it. The Americans are the, the puppet masters always. That is very much the Beijing view. Do you think COVID-19 has allowed China to play around with its trading partners? Oh, I don't. I mean, the, the coronavirus sort of... I, I don't think China had any grand strategy on it, of course, because it, it did genuinely take everyone by surprise. Um, one of the, it's actually made things worse in many ways for, for China-US ties, not, not just because you know, Trump is um, very keen to, to blame China for his own inadequacies in dealing with his domestic outbreak, but going back before then, you had this heated trade war for two years. It got resolved with this really patchy deal that basically didn't achieve any of the US aims, but Beijing did commit to buying a huge increase in American agricultural goods. And then you have this coronavirus recession all across the world. There's no way the US farmers can produce and fulfill those orders. There's no way Chinese demand is even going to be there for that much American, uh, you know, things like US beef and US uh, you know, agricultural stuff. A lot, a lot of them are staples, but a lot of them also too are luxury goods like wine. So you've got this economic calamity now that's engulfed this phase one trade deal. And China really wants to fulfill that trade one, that, that phase one deal because it was pretty beneficial to Beijing. They didn't really have to make any compromises. So they think, great, if we can just buy more of this stuff, we can stave off Trump putting more pressure on us to actually open up our economy properly and be a bit more reciprocal. And yet now you've got this economic downturn and the, the, the Chinese are all sort of, the government's all fretting because it knows that it can't fulfil the terms of that initial deal. And if it can't do that, then Trump on the election campaign is going to slam China even harder, which is what he's already basically doing. So... Then, in the global sphere, what has been the overall reaction to Scott Morrison's push in the latest assembly? Well, it's been pretty positive from from the usual Western countries, EU countries worked with Australia on drafting that that um, proposal that ended up going to the WHA. Uh, countries like the US, um, favourable. Countries outside of the Western sphere don't, you know, they don't usually tend to engage when uh, Australia is seen to be having any sort of diplomatic issue with China. But the most interesting thing is when the EU put that bill forward, the one that Australia, you know, basically supported, you had a huge array of all sorts of interesting countries, Russia, some African countries, uh, all supporting it. Now, these nations, particularly the Russians and those African states, they usually are pretty close to Beijing diplomatically and would be very careful not to do anything in any international body that would anger Beijing. 
And yet here they all were jumping on board and supporting the EU resolution. Now, it wasn't an Australian resolution in the end, but it was pretty similar. So, yeah, it was received pretty well. And this, I think, is the reason why China was so obsessed with trying to tell Australia that the end product that was approved was not what Australia proposed because Beijing didn't want to look like, you know, the whole world had basically agreed to this inquiry, which China had from the outset criticised. When Australia first came out with the probe, China threatened to boycott some of Australia's trading products. What was actually going on there? Well, when I talk about consumer boycotts, it was a suggestion that if relations continue to be strained, Chinese consumers themselves might choose to forgo Australian beef, boycott tourism to Australia. And of course, China's government has long played a very close role in encouraging consumer boycotts over here. We've seen countries like South Korea affected, the Philippines, uh, Norway. So when the Chinese government talks about a consumer boycott, they're usually not talking about something organic. I think they're usually talking about a boycott that the Chinese state whips up through its state media. Um, But the reality is a lot of the Australian products or exports to China are not easy to boycott. You're talking about, okay, the biggest one by a mile, iron ore. You can't, China can't boycott that. It needs iron ore for its economy. Things like coal and LNG are very much based on economic demand. They're not consumer goods. And then you get to the actual consumer goods, steak and wine and dairy. Well, these things all have very good reputations over here. The middle, the cashed up middle class here, they don't want to be eating some some rubbery steak from Inner Mongolia. They want to be eating the real deal, Australian prime beef. And I don't think they really care, most people, about the diplomatic relations of the country where the cow is from. And the same goes for dairy products. If you've got a kid and you want to feed them or give them infant formula, there's such cynicism towards domestic brands that you want the trusted stuff from overseas. And that's probably more important to you than the diplomatic state of ties with the country producing the infant formula. So all these, all these sort of luxury in wine as well, you know, it's another one, all these sorts of things. I don't think it would be that easy to whip up nationalistic Chinese consumers into a frenzy to boycott them, which is why I think the government instead just intervened and basically banned imports from 30% of the beef, Australia's beef providers and uh, banned, uh, well, the barley is a bit different, but basically banned the barley. Um, you know what I mean? It's, it sort of feels like the government had to intervene because it, boy, getting Chinese consumers to boycott this stuff wouldn't be that easy. The other one we do talk about is Chinese students and tourists to Australia. Yeah, okay, so that, that's a more tangible choice of what country you send your kid to. But you may have a, a situation where more nationalistic patriotic families decide they're not going to send their kid off to uni in Australia. But then if they want a Western education for their son or daughter, where else are they going to send them to? The US? They've got terrible relations with the US. Canada? They've got dreadful relations with Canada. Britain? Slightly better, but they're still strained. 
uh, European countries where English is not the primary language, you have to speak French or German or Italian. You know what I mean? There's a very limited option for Chinese parents to send their kids abroad if they want a Western education because pretty much every country that you could send the kid to is having a diplomatic dispute with China on any given week. So that's, and tourism's the same. So, so that's why it wouldn't be that easy for the Chinese government to generate mass boycotts of Australian goods. So do you see this as a classic tactic from China? Oh, it's, it's textbook Chinese diplomacy to threaten economic coercion. And as we've seen with beef and barley, to kind of do it at the margins. But to actually achieve a consumer-led boycott, they can threaten it, but it'll be pretty difficult to pull it off. Just some of those countries I just mentioned that also have various disputes. Canada, for example, the Chinese government for a period banned canola imports from Canada. For Norway, years ago, they had a dispute and they banned the import of Norwegian salmon. The Philippines had a dispute and they banned uh, fruit imports. But they didn't ban them. They claimed there was some import quality problem, which is the exact same thing they've done for the Australian beef, claiming there's a labelling issue. So it, this is all textbook stuff. What I think is there's a limit to how much China can restrict Australian trade. And the question is, is that limit acceptable to Australia or will you start to see in Australia an increasingly panicked domestic debate about how we deal with China? What does the future look like for Australia-China trading relations? So I would say it will only get worse. I can't see any way it can get better. So China and US rivalry is ramping up it's on a pretty clear trajectory. Even if Joe Biden wins this year, both sides in Washington pretty much have a consensus now that China is a rising threat, more, more so than an opportunity, which is a total flip on what it was 10 years ago. Australia is a, it's, it's not just Chinese imaginations, Australia is a steadfast ally of the United States. That contradiction between the two will only become more stark and Beijing will only seek to punish Australia economically more, even if there's a limit to how much it can do that, but it will still seek to either punish, threaten, or coerce Australia into weakening its support for the US um, whenever you know, the Americans uh, launch uh, various campaigns against China. And, and we're seeing this with the, uh, the Trump election campaign. He wants to put China front and center He's got members of his administration talking all sorts of crazy theories about Wuhan labs and so forth. And this puts Australia and many other similar countries in a really awkward spot because, <laughs> first of all, a lot of that stuff doesn't actually look particularly true. And second of all, once upon a time, the, the, you know, the US uh, would have relied on Australia for diplomatic public support. And I'm sure the embassy in Canberra, the American embassy, is saying to Australia, look, guys, we want you to back us on this. And the Australians would be left with little choice but to say, hang on, we, we, we kind of can't we don't, or we don't want to. So China will seek to open that wedge up even more between Australia and the US. Um, this will lead to an increasingly bitter and fraught relationship with Australia. And uh, that's just going to be the new normal. So does that mean we can expect to see 
the China-US trade war ceasefire influence our relationship with China and the US? It puts Australia at a slight disadvantage because of things like, you know, the Bali issue. Um, but the, the trade war is by no means over. Basically, as I said, Trump signed, it, Trump, Trump signed a deal that didn't achieve anything for the US except a short-term gain for American exporters. But it's a, long, it's a long-term problem, the whole trading relationship. So if he were to win the election, he would surely pick up that trade dispute and run with it further. The thing is, though, if, uh, if the other side, if Biden wins, it's kind of unclear if the Americans would continue to pursue it. But I, you look at things like um, the technology battle and America increasingly restricting you know, chip sales to Huawei, for example. So Australia, in, in some ways, can avoid getting caught in the middle of all of this. But long term, and I think we're, we're seeing it now in these past few months, China is starting to go around one by one and try and target the allies of the US. So it's only going to get worse, this relationship between Australia and China. If you had a different administration running China, if you didn't have these hardline, hawkish, hyper-nationalists running China, maybe things could get better. But you just have a group of people under Xi Jinping in charge of China at the moment who are very, very hardline. They are real hardcore ideologues and they are not the type of people who will, will, will help lead to a sort of smoother path in Australia-China relations. Can you tell me a bit about the Belt Road Initiative and its effects on our relationship with China at the moment? More specifically as well, Victoria's involvement in the Belt Road Initiative and what's going on there? So I think the Victorian state government did what uh, some local governments around the world have done. They signed on simply to get more Chinese investment. The, the idea with Belt and Road is that China's got a list of friendly countries that have signed on. It's very important to Xi Jinping. It's his vanity project, basically. It does have, you know, it does have this long-term idea that China's economy is slowing down. They've got all this excess labour, excess uh, material. Why don't they just go around the world and build the world's infrastructure, get Chinese companies to do it all? That will help prop up the Chinese domestic economy because you're using Chinese companies. But also, too, it will create, it create economic dependence on China. Uh, and so they will basically get everyone in debt to them and they can use that for diplomatic leverage. Um, you know, on the surface, it sounds like a pretty good strategic ploy from China. If you're the Victorian government, you're probably thinking, hey, if we sign up to this thing, then that gives a green light to anyone in Beijing or Shanghai who wants to do a project in Victoria. They want to you know, buy 20% of our port or they want to build a, a, a road or a tollway or something. If we sign up to this thing, it, it, it says to the, there's always a Communist Party committee in every company here, it says to the committee that oversees the company on the Chinese end, hey, this state, Victoria, has signed Belt and Road. These guys, are they're on our side, so it's politically safe for us to go ahead with the investment. So that, that's kind of the idea. There's this sort of concern in future that if you don't sign on to Belt and Road, then a, a Chinese investment will be thwarted because they're demanding that only Belt and Road countries get the money. But that hasn't eventuated so far, and I still think if a good investment is a good investment, it'll go forth. 
But Victoria's obviously thinking, well, if we sign on, it just gives this incentive for Chinese companies to invest in Victoria, which other states don't have because they haven't signed on in the country. Australia itself hasn't signed on. So I think that's the, the idea that Victoria is doing. Um, the problem is Belt and Road is a highly political initiative. It's written into the Communist Party's party constitution, not even the Chinese government, but the actual party. It is literally in the constitution of a political party. And the Australian Foreign Affairs Department, the Australian Foreign Minister would say this is a diplomatic issue, but, you know, we should be doing it. But you've got this renegade state saying, no, no, we're going to bypass the diplomats and we're just going to do one-on-one -on -one diplomacy directly with Beijing. I should add, if this was in reverse, if one rogue Chinese province decided to stitch up some sort of economic tie with Australia in defiance of Beijing, it would never happen. It's unimaginable. But um, the foreign ministry in Beijing would regard it as an egregious interference in China's domestic affairs for a foreign country to directly deal with one province. So if the shoe was on the other foot, Beijing wouldn't have a bar of it. But of course, China loves it because it's creating a divide between Victoria and the federal government. Interesting. Yeah, we've seen a lot of backlash recently for the Victorian Premier and Treasurer in regards to the decision making around the Belt Road Initiative. So why is it so to have that divide between federal and state government, do you think? So China ultimately wants Australia as, as a nation to sign on to Belt and Road. It wants everyone to sign on to Belt and Road. It would be this, as I said, strategic, uh, it's massive strategic advantages for China to do that. And there's also a vanity advantage for Xi Jinping, this legacy thing. Thing is, it wouldn't necessarily actually make much of a difference. Um, Chinese investment has been falling in Australia in recent years for all sorts of reasons. And uh, although, yes, by signing on, it could give the green light for projects to go ahead. Uh, as I said, projects that already make economic sense will probably proceed whether or not Australia is part of Belt and Road. Um, but China really wants Australia to sign on. It wants everyone to sign on. And because Australia is refusing to sign on for all sorts of reasons, the Chinese government says, you know what? Why don't we just go and try and pick off every state one by one? We'll go, we'll send our consular officials, we'll offer big investment potential, big investment projects. We'll get the states one by one signed up to, and we'll get them to basically surround the federal government, put pressure on the federal government, and this is a, a well-worn strategy that China uses in other countries as well when it's trying to achieve di diplomatic objectives. It can't, you know, if it can't get the federal government or the national government over the line, it will approach the local governments, and that's what they're doing with Victoria. Right, so what happens now, and what can the Australian government actually do for their relationship with China? Mm, there are various schools of thought on this. So if you were, say, Twiggy Forrest, the mining billionaire, and you make all your money off China, you would take the view that Australia needs to make compromises to stop publicly raising concerns about values issues and to sign up to Belt and Road and to make all sorts of nice diplomatic overtures to China because there is a power imbalance. China is far more powerful than Australia, and we have no choice about that. This is a view that I think you sometimes see from academics like Hugh White, this sort of futility view of the power imbalance itself overrides everything else. 
So you take, you know, Hong Kong, for example, has had long-running issues. Uh, Australia just last week, along with several other nations, Western nations, put out a statement of concern. The view put forth by many in the business community would be, don't do that. Just don't don't raise your voice about Hong Kong. Don't raise your voice about the Uyghurs. Don't raise your voice about China colonising the South China Sea Islands. Don't raise your voice about this, that or the other. Just shut up, basically. Uh, censor Australia's public discussion on these issues of value. And Beijing will love that. And tickety-boo, the economic relationship will be good. Sign up to Belt and Road, you know, even better. This would be, this is one view. Um, but the other view, which is obviously the predominant view at the moment, is don't compromise your values. That's exactly what the Communist Party wants us to do. We're already doing a huge amount of trade with China and maintaining our values. Let's try and ride that as long as we can. Maybe we need to take a bit of an economic hit to maintain those values. Uh, of course, in the end, um, it, it, what will eventually happen will be somewhere in between. You know, you'll see Australia becoming more timid but only to a degree. And um, that's about all Australia can do. The onus, in my view, is really on the Chinese side. I think that the Chinese diplomatic uh, actions, if Australia were to do what the Chinese have done to Australia in reverse, it would just be egregious. To have the Australian ambassador here uh, publicly in the Chinese state media uh, ridicule the Chinese government's uh, efforts on coronavirus as a joke, you know, or, or to sort of, put out these inflammatory statements in the state media about how awful China is, it, this would create an absolute diplomatic calamity. So I, I really think the onus, frankly, falls on the Chinese side. Due to all of this, do you see Australia becoming more reliant on our own production capabilities? No, no, not at all. Australia can't. It's just too expensive in Australia, too far away. I think it's more likely that, as we're starting to see a little bit, supply chains will move out of China, but they'll just move to Vietnam or to Mexico or other places where the labour is cheaper and the costs are cheaper. Australia Australia is just too expensive to, to make most things, unfortunately. Um, the idea, though, is try and reduce your reliance on China. Easier said than done. There just aren't comparable markets that are big enough. You look at India, for example, it's got the same number of people as China almost, but you're not going to be selling beef to the Indians. That's for sure. You're not going to be, um, you know, you're not going to be sure you can, I think there are now almost uh, as many Indian international students as Chinese. So yeah, there are markets where you can tap that, but you're not going to be selling the same volumes of iron ore to India anytime soon that you still are to China. But you will see efforts, I think, to reduce that over-reliance. And particularly you look at um, international education is a great example. You know, the universities, I think it was Sydney Uni, two-thirds of their international students were from one market, China. And then they're having a bit of a whinge when there's a diplomatic spat that it's going to affect their bottom line. Well, if, if you gear yourself that heavily towards a market um, from a country which is known for economic coercion in its diplomacy, what do you expect? Well, then... Thank you so much for your time, Bill. No worries. Good luck with uh, good luck with the podcast. If we've sparked your interest or you want to hear more about a certain topic, contact us via our socials, website, or the link in the description. This is Global Questions, and thanks for listening.